This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Hey, traders. This is Limit Up, where we talk with traders, market participants, and trading psychologists to help you improve your trading. I'm John Hoagland, here with Mark Meadows. Mark? Uh, we've snuck into the broadcast booth for a special review of Linda Rashke's new book, Trading Sardines. Hey, Hoag. Yeah, this is a special episode of Limit Up for a couple reasons. One, I know you mentioned that we'll be talking again with Linda Rashke. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, she's one of the traders featured in Jack Schweiger's Market Wizard series and is a good friend of Top Steps. But it's also a special episode because we're bringing season one of Limit Up to an end today. And you know what that means, Hogue. What does that mean? No more Limit Up podcast? No, it just means we're taking some time away to prep and launch for season two. Awesome. Why don't you share with us and our audience what that means? Definitely. We spent the first season of Limit Up talking to some of the best traders in the industry, legends like Tony Saliba and Blair Hall, Larry Benedict, Jack Schwager, and including today, two conversations with Linda Rashke. Um, and we love sharing their stories, but also want to offer some insights that may be more applicable to the traders out there who are earlier in their trading journey, um, who may not be billionaire and millionaire traders. Um, so we're coming up with some new segments, some shorter, more impactful interviews uh, that we think people will really love. And in the meantime, we'll be running some of the best conversations we've had in the past 18 months, along with some timely market information at the front of the episode. Um, so we're really looking for forward to this and, and for these episodes to continue to offer great value to our listeners. Uh, thanks, Mark. This is uh, all, all sounds very exciting. And I want to say to anybody listening that has ideas about segments, guest ideas for season two, as well as feedback about things they liked, want to see more of, want to see improved, please don't hesitate to send us an email at limitup at topsteptrader.com. Once again, limitup at topsteptrader.com. All right. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Linda Reschke. All right, John. Uh, looks like we have a very special guest here on our podcast today. Who do we got? Well, we are really pleased to be able to talk with Linda Rasky, who is a legend, not just for her profile in Market Wizards, but also for her track record as a successful active trader and money manager. This is our second conversation with Linda, so if you haven't heard the first one, which was a two-part episode, check out episodes 39 and 40. Hogue, those were great episodes, so I would definitely encourage everyone to listen to them and get a good background on Linda. But the reason we have her on today is we were able to get an advanced copy of her new book, Trading Sardines, which talks about some of the trades that made her into who she is today. And the one thing I really love about it is it talks about all those things that went wrong in her trading. And over the course of 30 plus years, I bet you can imagine uh, how many things went wrong. So let's launch into it. Linda, great to have you on. Uh, we have to start with the name of the book, Trading Sardines. Where did that come from? No, well, I mean, the original name of the book was um, Fear and Loathing in the Financial Markets, and it was a takeoff of 
Hunter S. Thompson style of writing, you know, wild and crazy there. And I got feedback that that was too negative. That I'm, I'm too positive <laughs> of a person and the fear and loathing part, like, you know, is too negative. So then somebody else, uh, actually, I think it was like Greg Morris suggested that I add a little subtitle after that. So that's how it came about. And basically, Trading Sardines is an old tale, a folklore tale of how a person went down to the wharf and got caught up in an auction where they were auctioning off a can of sardines and he ended up getting caught up into it and of course paid the high price and was very proud that he won the sardines and took them home to his wife and when they opened them up they were rotten. So he went back to the uh, auctioneer on the wharf and said, uh, this is all in the introduction by the way, you know, I demand my money back. These were, you know, these are rotten and the old man said, those are trading sardines, not eating sardines. <laughs> and the moral of the story was that you really can't place valuations on the products that you trade, which, of course, everybody wants to do. They think they know what something's valued at, but it's only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. And you have to operate like that in the markets that you are not the one that determines the value of something Mr. Market is and whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. So... It's just a little analogy. Yeah, no, I thought it was great, especially setting up this book, which was really fun to read. It was a lot unlike any other trading books out there. It was chock full of those lessons, but it really didn't really hit you over the head with it. So we're going to touch on some of those if that's OK. Absolutely. Personally, I've been uh, involved in, in some of those auctions myself in in my history here so i can personally relate to uh <laughs> trading sardines you've had a couple rotten trades oh no. haven't we all i was gonna <laughs> say hopefully it wasn't buying silver at 50 bucks or something like that uh nope nope it was probably back in the s p days and i know you've got a little bit of history there as well yeah cool so linda from reading the book i noticed some themes mentorship self-awareness determination it seems like those kind of intertwine to being the formula for your success. How did you unravel those keys? I would say that mentorship on a scale of one to 10 probably was like a zero because the mentorship that I received when I first started down on the floors, my first backer, you know, I could follow his habits. He wasn't a talker at all. He was a mathematician. So it was more using his tools, finding access, which was a charting service and, and following the numbers that he plotted and logged, and I copied that. And I mean, anything like you would learn in an academic course, which in the big scheme of things, I, as I mentioned in the book, all went out the window, you know, once I stepped on the trading floor. And then when I moved to Philadelphia, I was backed by a group of three. And the main person, Jerry, he had been a physicist. And same thing. It wasn't that anybody taught me how to trade per se. It was more observing their work ethic and their habits and, you know, what he would do for two hours before the market opened and then two hours after the market closed. And the mentorship, I actually was fortunate that it, it forced me to really do my own thing. Nobody else was trading futures. I mean, nobody, very few people, a few were trading bonds and S&Ps, but, but in terms of actual technicals or systems or things like that, you know, I probably followed the same journey that most successful traders follow. And that is try this, try that, you know, research this, model that, and, you know, maybe one out of a hundred things you come up with actually works. 
So that's the mentorship part. And then the second part. Yeah, and maybe. Hmm? And maybe we should have said, you know, community there, because, you know, as you mentioned, you kind of seem to have plugged into a bunch of different communities. I know in your book, you mentioned the technical analysis community as well. So maybe, you know, I did, I did join the MTA. The MTA folks were wonderful. They are much on the institutional side, you know, these were all like Ralph Acampora type people, um, the majority of them. So it didn't really help so much from a trading aspect, but it was still being immersed in the financial markets, the whole culture of it, you know, uh, seeing what other people did and they all had a, a niche, you know, for example, Ian McAvity was a good friend and he was a Canadian who really specialized in gold funds and created a bunch of products. It's not like we ever talked gold or the market is the market going up or down, but you're surrounded by people that have uh, similar work ethics. Um, Larry McMillan has always been a really good friend. I don't think he trades actively per se, but I know he does manage money, you know? So I see Larry and Larry gets up at 2 a.m. every morning and spends two hours writing his newsletter that he has religiously put out there day after day and then goes back to bed. So you, you see other people's passion. So you would say instead of like formal mentorship you had a lot of examples around you of the kind of work it was going to take to do this and and you kind of took it upon yourself to learn the lessons well i didn't meet these people really until after i had been trading for 11 or 12 years you know for example the mta i joined that i think after i had been trading for 10 years and it was just cuz i was getting lonely having left the floor and now i'm sitting upstairs working out of my house so you sort of reach out where you can, which was a little bit more awkward in those days because we didn't have the internet, you know, we didn't have social media, you didn't have a lot of things. So I think it was just a shared passion. Um, but I really feel I was successful because I did everything on my own. You know, I came up with my own indicators, my own style, my own modeling, my own testing, thinking naively that, you know, I could solve the Rubik's cube, but, um, so even if we do solve Rubik's cube, we're not, we're not, we're not going to make it. Then they're going to change the colors on you. Yes, that's it. That's it. Once you have the answers, the market changes the questions, right? That's it. You find so the key, they change the lock. Your kind of mantra in one part of the book is correct mistakes immediately. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, I have two, uh, slogans, if you will, correct mistakes immediately comes from my amazing ability to make an incredible amount of errors on my execution platform. I don't know. I, my, I think my eyesight's fine. <laughs> I think my hand-eye coordination is fine, you know, but, you know, I trade a lot of markets and a lot of products and there have <laughs> been times when I've hit sell and I meant to put buy and I meant to put in a stop and it actually triggered it or I thought I was putting in a trade on the Swiss franc and it was really the silver market. Or, so I had to put that there for myself. And then from there, I could adapt that to other situations. You know, for example, thinking that I was going to short the morning rally and I shorted it and it obviously wasn't a shorting uh, spot. It might have been turning into a trend day up. So I could say to myself, 
well, that was an error. I better fix that immediately, you know, and it's a different way of framing it out for your mind. It's not taking a loss. It's correcting an error, you know, <laughs> and so sometimes those little semantics are great tricks we can use with our brain. Yeah, in the pit, when we had an error, it was always uh, don't become the accidental trader. Just get out. Cover that. Cover it immediately. The accidental trader. <laughs> yeah, the accidental, accidental trader, trader might have a serious uh, final accident eventually. Yeah, and I like the way you said when you have a plan and you execute that plan and that plan proves to be incorrect or you know wrong, whatever you want to say, it's getting out of it. It's You don't marry those. You say, okay, you know what, I'll pay you that information and I'll move on. Yeah, I know. I'm, the markets are just a statistical probability game, which is why so many people that are good at poker or blackjack or game theory in general do well, because there's not the emotional reaction to losers. It's, okay, I know if I do this, uh, if I do my homework at night and make my best guess for every market the next day, I'll probably get 70% right, you know, and then the other ones, it might be a lot of noise, it, it might... Uh, be a breakout, but that breakout might fail. You know, there's so many different things that can unfold. Now, Linda, there's some things in this book that I, I don't think a lot of people would have the intestinal fortitude or the ability to, to get through. There's a one trade here, you're managing money in 2008 and the things went a little crazy. You were short 600 S&Ps and 600 Russell to close on Friday. And, you know, things kind of went the wrong way and you had a big loss and you worked your way out of it. How do you have that kind of intestinal fortitude to be able to face something like that and then come back and try and, and do it again? You know, it's funny because, I mean, some of these incidents in these books, I th there's like maybe 10 or 12 really ugly things that happened to me in that book. Um, that particular trade I had put on just that Friday afternoon um, because the market was looking really crummy. This is like 2008 and I wanted to be short at the end of the week. And unfortunately I had a cracked molar and I had to go sit and, and see the dentist. So in the very last hour of the day, I'm sitting in the dentist's chair and my assistant called me and he's like, Linda, the spies are trading up 20 handles, you know, and of course my mouth is completely numb. I can't talk. But what had happened is the uh, Fed had come and said they were taking over Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. So now the markets are closed. It's Friday and it looks like the S&Ps are going to gap up over 40 handles on Sunday evening, which they did. So there's really uh, nothing you can do. Molar. And a lot of these things in this book were what I call outliers. That's why it was going to be like fear and loathing in Las Vegas. You know, I'm like the black swan that's going down the river blindfolded and there's the waterfall. You just can't predict these events. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to have a stomach for risk and dealing with these things in the markets because the markets are really about surviving the outliers, you know. So with that particular incident, it's not an error on my thing because eventually the market did sell off in a very big way. Um, mm. I just was caught in an outlier. And so much of the book is explaining how do you deal with these outliers, as you said. And the first thing you have to recognize is that our job as a trader is to trade and take advantage of the opportunity. So anytime there is extreme volatility, heavier volume, an unusual gap or an outlier event, you have to be able to trade because that's where the opportunity is and that's how you make your living. So 
generally my first rule of thumb is to reduce my position size, get smaller so that I'm, I don't have my back totally up against the wall and I have capital and I can trade and then I can work on making that money back. So that's sort of what I did. I, uh, you know, I, I closed out half my position on Sunday night when the markets gapped up huge against me just so that I could trade, even though I still felt like big picture, the market was just ripe for a sell-off. And, and then, you know, we just started trading around, around the position a little bit. And, uh, and then when I felt like, you know, the momentum was truly reversing, I, I put the position back on again, but I had to be able to trade because I don't know what's going to happen. And I didn't want to lose any more than I had already lost. I would lost like four, $4 million, you know, overnight. So I, I didn't want to lose any more than that. <laughs> so I had to reduce, you know, was it Jesse Livermore reduce the position size down to the sleeping level. Right. And, and, and that's pretty much my modus operandi. When something, if there's an adverse event, you have to right. either reduce your size or, just bite the bullet. And there's several incidences in there in the, in the book too, where I just bit the bullet. For example, the hogs, you know, the live hog market. And I hadn't even traded the hogs for like a year, you know, and I put on a pretty big hog position, like, and it was a long seasonal bias and the hogs always, you know, have a really easy technical um, pattern at this time. And I went down to Miami to hear Erica sing in the opera and coming back through the airport on Sunday, there is a pile of papers in a kiosk and on the cover of the newspaper was a baby pig with a hypodermic needle in its mouth. And it said swine flu. And that was like right after I had bought, you know, a couple hundred hog futures swine flu hits. Now swine flu really had nothing to do with pigs, but are you going to go eat pork after there's this swine flu hysteria? No, you know, so there's nothing I can do except try to get out of my position as gracefully as possible when the hogs reopen on Monday morning. And it wasn't easy because they opened, we were able to get out of partial, but then they immediately locked down limit. So then you're sucking wind into the second day. Oh. So you just, you just have to take your hit and then go to the markets where you can trade actively and you'll probably make it back up in some other market. That is really, really important. You know, that's a really important lesson. You're not going to necessarily make it back up yeah. and I think in the same market because people have a tendency for this revenge trading, you know, or this this market owes them, you know. No market owes you. You're you're a trader and your job is just to go and find a spot where there's an edge and um and, and see if you can capitalize on that. But it's very difficult to see any edge when you have a devastating loss or, you know, something clouding you that's going to cause a bias. That was really my question was, you know, how do you manage emotions to make the hard decisions moving forward? I totally understand. Yeah. You're going to cut size. You're going to survive. You're going to try and make that money back in smaller ways, but just to the emotion of having an event like that. And I understand it is of no fault of your own when, when, you know, these outliers or anomaly type situations happen, but how do you stomach that and just push forward and, and, you know, find your way out of that darkness because that's, you know, that's, that's big money. I mean, it's more money than I've ever made or lost in a day by a long shot. Well, um, to put it in perspective, 
when that happened, I had been trading for 17 years and I'd probably taken 20,000 losses already, you know? So to put it in perspective, it's yet one more loss, you know? And I think over time, you'll agree that the longer you're in the markets, the more you start to get desensitized to these types of things. And um, that's a good part of the learning curve for newer traders that they have to understand will improve with time in the market. You know, when you first are trading and you actually have real money, not a simulator, and you go to put on that trade, a lot of people might experience a little adrenaline rush, you know, a little uh, nervousness or an increase in your heartbeat, um, sweaty armpits. (laughs) And, and, um, you know, these things go away with time. It's, it's, you have to trust that. Um, it's like me trying to jump off a high dive for the first time, man, my heart is going to be pounding and my hands are going to be sweaty. But if I've jumped off that high dive 10,000 times, you know, you don't even think twice about it. So it's a conditioning process. Yeah, Linda, I, I kind of am curious about that S&P trade, too, or, where Fannie and Freddie were bailed out. You know, a lot of people, particularly newer novice traders, might have looked at that if they had any capital on the sidelines and said, I'm going to sell some more. What helped you realize, hey, this isn't the place to double down on this? Um, even professional traders, right? Like you look at folks like Bill Ackman who just get in this losing position and and snowball it because they think they're right. What what about you particularly do you think uh, helped you, you know, kind of pull that trigger? Or did you want to sell more and have to walk yourself off the ledge? No, I didn't want to sell more because I didn't know what was happening. I, you know, it's hard to assess the situation, the full situation when you have a unique event. It's not like, oh, here's a large gap in a stock due to earnings and you've seen it hundreds of times. You know, when there's an event that you haven't seen, you really don't have the past history to put it in a perspective. When I was on the trading floor, I I was on the floor of the Pacific Coast Stock Exchange only for two or three years and then on the Philadelphia Stock Exchange for hmm, maybe another three or four years. Not that long, but When you're on the floor in the options, in the equity options, which is what I traded, the options are such that the clients come in or the brokers come in rather for their clients and the paper tends to be one way. If they want to buy options, they're just going to keep buying them and they're going to keep buying them. And whose job is it to sell them? My job. That's my job. I have to accommodate the order flow. And so then you have to run over and hedge yourself with stock. But Probably um, my experiences are pretty common to a lot of floor traders where two days a month you end up giving back a good percentage of your profits because you averaged. You know, you, you sold that broker the options and the stock continues higher and he comes in and he wants to buy more and now the price is a half point higher and you have to sell them and, and now it's a little bit more and you didn't quite buy enough stock to hedge yourself And you end up averaging, hoping that it's going to have a dip at noontime or a dip in the afternoon where you can get your inventory back. But usually there's one or two days where it doesn't and you just get run over. And um, I mean, I probably lived through those days for six or seven years, you know, waking up going, 
why did I do that? You know, I just gave back half my month's profits in one day. And I really wanted to trade bigger size. And I knew that I couldn't do that. Uh, there's enough variance, which means volatility in your bottom line. You can get away with variance when you're a sole individual and maybe you've just got a two or $300,000 account. You know, once you're doing big size, that variance is a kiss of death. You know, it's, you just won't stay in the game that long. So I really had to make a conscious effort to reverse that, that habit. And it helped being off of the floor because now I didn't have to accommodate that order flow. And also, um, a friend had introduced me to a volatility breakout system. It was very instructional because it's a black and white system. There's hard and fast rules. And so I traded it for a little bit and it really showed me the power of jumping on board that freight train as it's leaving the station. Instead of, you know, your first instinct is, ah, oh, they rallied it up 20 points. That's too high. It's got to come back in a little bit. And that was a really good exercise. I would encourage anybody that's a newer trader to study these. Um, you're not going to get rich doing it because there can be slippage and it's a lot of work and um, you you can't skip signals. That might be the signal that makes your, your trade. But it's a valuable exercise that I would encourage anybody to do. So that was very helpful in understanding not to average a trade. And I really made a conscious effort not to average trades because I recognized that the majority of time the loss just got bigger, you know? Uh -huh. So. Cool. And, and one of the other interesting things I found in the book was uh, you, you mentioned on a couple occasions that when these big outlier events happen and you had those big losses, you kind of immediately reacted and closed the trade or closed half of the trade, but then you ignored your PL. I think in one instance you said you even didn't even open your clearing firm's statement for a few days. In the age of electronic trading, can you still do that? You don't have to have the PL showing on your trading platform. You really don't. All platforms I know of, you can you can hide that option if you want. Now it, it is important to check your statements um, to see if all the activity is hitting up correctly. I think it's less important to be as rigorous about it as it used to be simply because you can see your open positions all time. I mean, I have my platform up 24-7 and I can see those positions at all times if I want. So I know there's nothing goofy going on. You know, wait, wait, I didn't. I didn't sell six, you know, unleaded gas futures, you know, <laughs> where did that come from? I mean, that really doesn't happen these days. Um, so I think, yeah, you can, you can create your environment just like any business or any arena. It's really important for you to create your own environment. Nice. Now, uh, a lot of traders might read Market Wizards, look at your track record, and think you have it all figured out. Uh, but some of the parts of the books, you know, that were interesting to me were when you mentioned that there are times when you evaluate your performance and look back and say, gosh, I really didn't stick to my trading plan. Um, can you talk about how you continually, you know, sort of analyze your, your performance um, and how frequently you may look back and say, hey, I could have done better there? 
<laughs> well, I, I say that at the end of every day, you know, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I've yet to trade a perfect day. Um, I think it's really important for people to have a process, especially myself. I'm not as detail oriented or as anal retentive as, as the profession really says you should be. So that's my Achilles heel is not being as rigorously detailed as I should be. Um, but the way that I get around that is to pretty much have a concrete process, the way I go about things. So when, from the time I sit down in the morning, check my platform, turn on my little, you know, background music, um, you know, all the actions that you do are sort of telling the, the brain, okay, we're getting into game mode here. And then particularly the homework part at night, you know, logging numbers, writing down my plan. I used to, I used to fax, I used to fax it out to friends and, um, that held me accountable. You see, I had to be accountable. If I promised people, I would send them my fax or my homework at a certain time. So you can create these things that help you be accountable, whether it's sharing your bottom line or your trades with a spouse or another friend, a trading coach, you know, whatever the, the structure is that makes you share your, your P and L with somebody else, because otherwise it's like me being on a diet. And then I go on a, to a birthday party or a Super Bowl party and I overeat and I eat the chili and then I stuff my face with chocolate cake and chips and guacamole and everything under the sun. Do you think I want to step on that scale the next morning? Hell no. I'm not going to step on that scale until I've like starved myself for three days. Then I can peek and see what it says. Hmm. And that's exactly um, what I was saying about my P&L early on. This was when I was on the trading floor and there were some ugly situations there's something about your ability to concentrate when you're down. And you can see this with professional athletes. You can see it in a lot of different disciplines. I think, you know, that most of the performance oriented disciplines, you have to concentrate when you're down. And um, I think most people are pretty good at that. You know, you don't want to just fold. Ah. I can't, I can't do this. I'm, I'm just going to walk out for the day. Oh, I give up, you know, close all my positions out. You know, it doesn't mean you want to get back in and trade when you're under the gun and, and having a bad day, but maybe you can do something else. Maybe you can organize your office papers. Maybe you can do a little research. Maybe you can print out some things, make yourself busy doing something else. Just don't quit, you know, don't quit and walk away from the table. You don't want to trade. You don't want to bet. But maybe you can observe some of the other players, you know, like poker and, and, and how they're behaving or learn something, make something of value. I really like that. And just the fact that you said that you, even on the, the bad days, the bad times, it's actually just leaning on the process that you have and staying accountable to that process, which sounds like has helped you keep that focus. I mean, you know, we've all seen – Know, professional athletes down just never give up and fight their way back up to the to win the game and we've again also seen you know people choke it's when they get in their own head I think that where they choke it's when they focus on their process and their their uh, basics 
that that helps them get through do you feel that that's been helpful for you yeah well put i well put i think it's um you have to do something to get out of your own head that's really good i i mean my best um the best work i ever did or the things that i came up with you know systems indicators models whatever you want to call it was usually after a period when i was down you know and i just had to pour myself into doing something productive you know, and I would, I, w- I would sit there and grind away, grind away, you know, try and find some aberration or some way of looking at the data differently. And as is true with most modeling, you know, you can, you know, come up with a hundred different things and all it takes is finding one thing of value. And then the other 99 things fall by the wayside. And that's pretty much, you know, I can't tell you how many things I have developed and modeled and this and that and tested and you know, I don't use 99% of them, but I did find that 1% gold, you know, and I hang on to that because I know that that works for me. I know that a lot of those ideas, setups, and things that you've looked at, you've actually named. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and some work and some don't nowadays. Yeah, well, they say what works for a while and then doesn't the next time, right? Hmm. Awesome. Well, Linda, you know, I, I know we... Uh, don't want to ruin the book for everyone out there. We want uh, them to buy it uh, and read it for themselves. So uh, the last thing I, I kind of want to have you touch on uh, is this line I really, really loved. You said, at the end of the day, it all comes down to staying in the game. Here at Top Step, we say, always trade for tomorrow. If I made you pick one lesson from the book to impart to new traders uh, that summed up your experience, uh, would I have it right to say that's it? stay in the game. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's a matter of staying in the game, um, mentally, um, with capital and, you know, still maintaining your, your passion for it. I think that's the thing that sees all traders through the real rough periods is that even though they've lost the first year, lost the second year, they still have that passion for it. They still love the charts. They still have this marvelous wonder, you know, about how it's this ever-changing puzzle and the way the markets unfold every day. And I learned so much. I mean, I've been doing this now 38 years plus, and every day it's like, oh, I can remember periods. I didn't know what CDIs were. What are those? You know, let's let's research those. You know, there's always a new derivative or a new product or a new themed, uh, you know, regime change or, or something going on, you know, and, and the relationships change. Um, so, you know, if, if you look at it with a little bit of awe and wonder and realize just how little we really do know and how little we really can predict the future, which it's really not about predicting, it's more about um, what if you reframed it and you said to yourself, I am going to be the master of risk management. Does that sound so sexy? No, (laughs) it really doesn't sound very sexy, you know, but um, you have to find something that's going to tickle your fancy there. And then that keeps you in the game, that the passion keeps you in the game. So yeah, you're not giving any more of the book away, but I will say that I tried, um, I tried to make a concerted effort to go back all my notebooks over past 35 years. And, and this person said some words that really resonated me and, and Ned Davis, these were the gems that he, he uh, told me about and, and Mike Epstein, you know, who was a really good friend who's passed. This is, 
he was on the floor for like almost 50 years, you know, he traded and became the head of uh, the financial lab up at MIT, but he was just a basic tape reader at heart. And if you don't mind me uh, ending with one of his favorite quotes, he said, you can't eat like a bird and shit like an elephant, you know? <laughs> In other words, you can't be taking little profits and then have a big loss, you know? So I tried to incorporate a bit of the market's culture, you know, the things that trading lessons for me, how I dug myself out of it, and hopefully a lot of humor because I, I don't think people read so many books anymore. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to make it a book that they, they wouldn't be able to put down. Great. Well, Linda, last question for you, because I know, um, you know, you self-published this book. Uh, where can everyone out there go and, uh, and get their own copy? Um, if you go to my website, lindarashke.net, everybody can go there and you click on the little sardine and you can read the first chapter. So I would just say, go and read the first chapter and see, you know, if you enjoy it or not. And, um, you know, maybe in a year I'll stick it on Amazon or something. I just, uh, you know, I, I thought I would just try this. And um, you can also Google if you Google Trading Sardines book or Trading Sardines Linda Rashke you'll come up to my landing page and on all these, you can go and uh, see the table of contents and uh, read that first chapter. Great. We'll also put a link to that in our show notes. So uh, Linda, thanks oh, so man, much. You guys are sweet. Thanks. <laughs> we do what we can. Hey, you, you gave us so much knowledge today. Uh, really love it. John, this has been a pleasure. Thank you, uh, Linda. Your I love the book. Love the story. Love your passion for markets. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Take care. Mark, always great to connect with Linda. If you had to pick one thing out of this book and about what we talked with Linda about today, what would it be? You know, Hogue, there was so much in there, but if you make me choose one, I'd say it has to get back to that story about the S&P 500 and the $4 million loss she took overnight. Um, not only is it a big headline number that I've never had the uh, privilege or uh, <laughs> you know uh, opportunity to lose in a day, um, but it, it taught so much about her philosophy as a trader and what she did immediately when the market opened that Sunday was cut her size in half. And that's a lesson I think anyone out there can learn from. Yeah, I think uh, most of the time, traders that get into a losing position end up adding to that position. I've been there. Absolutely. I, I'm sure we all have, and I'm sure Linda has as well. But in that situation, to have the the presence of mind to do that, to help herself build herself back up, was to me uh, one of the biggest points of that. And you talk, uh, Hogan, and work with people and talk about this concept of venom, right? And and that's something that, you know, I think uh, this story tells about us, too, is, you know, I can't think of a more opportune time to be filled with this venom than I just put the trade on, the, this thing outside of my control just happened, and bam, I'm down on this money, and the market's closed, and I have to sit on it this weekend. How do you think— uh, people should go about like, you know, approaching or working on, you know, that that venom that builds up inside us? Well, I think she's really amazing in the fact that she was able to, you know, understand that this was something well beyond her control. You can't see these things coming. So how do you blame yourself? How do you build venom inside yourself 
about yourself. I can see being upset about the trade, but to be able to just kind of let go of that and do what's what's right and necessary in her best interest in the long run, to me, it was amazing. And and that may all go back to that concept she talked about of uh, statistics and how you know good traders are like good poker players and you can have a bad trade, you can have a bad day. And I think she said she's probably taken 20,000 losing trades in her career. Um, and so, you know, you can look at that, take it, move on. You're always there to trade tomorrow. Well, and it's, you know, of vital importance not to attach who you are as a person to your P&L. Yeah. It's tough to do. It is. It is. Cool. Yep. Well, Mark, this has been fun. Again, we'll be taking a few weeks off to prep for our new season. Uh, but we will be running some of our best episodes in the meantime. I'm going to ask again, if you do have feedback, ideas for future segments, uh, future podcasts, please try and let us know. Email those ideas and thoughts and feedback to limit up at topsteptrader.com. Also, please do leave us a rating or a review. Until next time. Trade well, everyone. Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.